Thank you for being a part of this today. Celebrate together. Uh, yes, I've been listening to the news all week too. Yes, I've been listening to people who are weary. And I too have been wearied. For all Canadians, there is a mix of emotion, there's concerns, there's frustrations, and for all kinds of reasons. No matter what you think of the protests, and no matter what you think of the Emergencies Act, there is, I could say with confidence, a sense of deep lament in our nation right now, uh, hearts that are broken. The pandemic itself, like just the fact of disease and of death, that's hard enough. The challenges and changes in restrictions, what that's meant for businesses, for organizations, for kids, for families, boy, that is incredibly difficult. It really is. The pressures that have been on our healthcare system and on our healthcare workers, how incredibly hard that has been. And how difficult for those who have had to lead through, to make hard decisions, what seems like essentially an impossible moment and situation. Now, my hope in starting there isn't actually to depress you, but to acknowledge the reality of where we are today. You are here. And here doesn't always look that exciting to us, does it? But more than that, it kind of does. It kind of does. Someone just said it was not, it's not all that wonderful. <laughs> to paraphrase. <laughs> My hope is to remind you that in the hard, in the challenge of this moment today, this is not the only story. It's not. Because God... Because God is here, because God is working, because God is with us as he promised he would be. And because of that, this moment for followers of Jesus, it means we have a special task to bring our country, to bring our neighbors before the very throne of God. We have access through the blood of Jesus to bring people right to the throne of God. That's the unique position that Christians find ourselves in this moment. We have a special task to offer deep compassion and kindness to each other as a community and to the rest of our world, and particularly to those with whom we disagree. I had a conversation with a good friend this week and I really appreciated it. At the end, we just talked briefly about, about the protests and acknowledged that, that Christian people that we know and love, well, they really have divergent views on, well, on governing authorities and what they should or shouldn't be doing in response to the protests. And then my friend said something like this. He said, for the church, for us as a body of believers, we need to acknowledge those differences on issues like this, but we also have to acknowledge that they're not the center of our faith. And most importantly, and this is my concern as a pastor, we need to focus our attention on what is at the center, on what we do hold in common, what does bind us together, and that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I appreciated that word from him, and I believe that. And it's why we need to redouble our commitment to the health and vitality of the church, 
to the health and vitality of our community around us, and to the task of making Jesus known to the world, for he is the only ultimate hope. And really, that's what we hear as we enter into the book of 1 Peter today. We hear it from this text as well. I just need to read this because it's right from our text that we're going to be looking at over these next few months. 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you be like-minded. Like-minded doesn't mean you think the same thing on every series of thoughts and issues. It's not what like-minded means in the Bible. Here's what it does mean. It means something more like this. Be all together and be all in on what matters most, on what's at the center of our faith, and think and live the same pattern of life that you see in Christ Jesus while you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is a self-giving, cross-shaped kind of life. Have that pattern of thinking in you. Be like-minded. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. In this moment, that needs to be our motto. And the Lord being my helper, may it start with me. See, the question is, and it always is and needs to be, for those who've given our allegiance to Jesus as our king, that's what Christians are, that's what we do, the question is always, what is the way of Jesus? What is the way of Jesus in this? Uh, What does he call us to be and to be about? How do we most faithfully enact that way of living? How do we best extend that in our witness to the world? The little book of 1 Peter, maybe more than any other book in the whole Bible, helps answer those sorts of questions. It offers a, a picture of what it means to actively be in the world for God's glory and actually for the good of our neighbors, especially in a world of trouble. The reality is that the Christian faith is deeply political, but maybe not in the way you think. Stanley Hauervoss and William Willimon, they, they say it in an interesting, even provocative kind of way in their book, Resident Aliens. They write this, Christianity is mostly a matter of politics. Politics is defined by the gospel. What do they mean by that? Because we need to define that. (laughs) Well, here's how they put it. This is their follow-up. The call to be part of the gospel is a joyful call to be adopted by an alien people, to join a countercultural phenomenon, a new polis. And polis is the Greek word for city. It's where we get the word politics from. It's like how a city runs. A new polis called church. Basically, they're pointing to the fact that the Christian community, who we are as the church, is marching to holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, and holy, H-O-L-Y, different set of values, different ways of being in the world, a different citizenry altogether. When Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, That kingdom, that's the different politic. That's the new city. This is Jesus is king. So I repent of whatever allegiance I used to have, and I say this is the new city, this is my citizenship. It's kingdom citizenship. 
Here's how Peter will say it. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's where your citizenship is. Foreigners, exiles, who, who are they? Resident aliens. They don't belong. John Foreman in a song that Switchfoot sings from way back when says it like this. We pledge allegiance to a country without borders, without politicians. That's the country to which we pledge allegiance. And he's right. And so throughout this text, here's what we're going to see. We're, we're going to see that God is shaping and forming in us a grace-given identity as God's sojourning or exilic, transient, outsider people. And that means, number two, adopting a cross-shaped perspective and set of dispositions. But make no mistake, through this text, we're not just given a way of seeing the world, though we are given that, but actually the practical ways of living out this new identity and this new way of perceiving the real world. Now, I think I may have sufficiently stirred the pot by now, <laughs> hopefully stirred up your hearts so that we can hear this text as it begins today. So let's pray as we, as we lean in. God, I am so thankful that you inspired Peter to write this down and send it to a bunch of churches in Asia Minor in the first century. They needed to hear it, but God, we do too. And so open us up to all you're calling us to be and be about for your glory and our joy. Amen. I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's kind of near the end. Uh, keep flipping, keep flipping past Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter. Um, and as you open up there, I want to I begin reading just right from the very first verses. Here's how it goes. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, again, sojourners, strangers, transients, resident aliens, outsiders, to God's Exile or elect exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Man, that greeting is loaded. First, Peter mentions his place as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That authorizes him to speak as an agent of Jesus. It qualifies his message as actually originating with Jesus. That's a great reminder for how we read this and actually any text of Scripture. These are not just Peter's thoughts. This is actually and truly God's word to us mediated through Peter's words. So this is Peter as an authorized agent to speak the Word of God to us. And I think we need to see this too as we begin, to think about what it means that Peter is the author of this book and the audience he's writing to. Now, warning, I'm going to go full biblical nerd uh, moment for a moment here, for about uh, four moments actually, and, uh, we, but we need this. See, it was pretty common when I entered seminary about just about 20 years ago, it was very common for people to say, well, First Peter, well, that's not really written by Peter. It was probably written by Peter's community, those who were summarizing his thoughts long after his death. And the reasons why were mostly two big reasons. One, people were saying that because, uh, well, the Greek, it's just way too good for a fisherman from Galilee. He couldn't write that. Number two, 
this sort of persecution that's talked about in this book, well, it doesn't seem to fit with the mid of first century. It's when Peter would have been alive. It fits, sounds more like the late first century. Well, long story short, I don't think these are solid arguments. And, and most of the commentaries coming out today have said, yeah, no, probably not that. And this matters. I'm going to show you why. Just look at the close of the letter. He says this, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Okay, well, that answers the question of the like, how could this guy write such good Greek? Well, he's got an amunesis, a scribe. Silas is there taking what Peter is saying and putting it down in language that sounds like polished Greek because that's what he does. And that's a normal thing in the first century that you would have a scribe writing down your words. Next thing. Um, she who is in, I'm continuing, this is uh, chapter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, send you her greetings. And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. She who is in Babylon, what does that mean? Well, Babylon was code language for Rome, both for the city itself, but also the pattern of life of the Roman Empire. Uh, so when you, hear, when you hear that kind of language of Babylon, we're usually talking about a whole system of governance, a whole system of life that is, that is in contention with the kingdom of God. And she, who is that? Well, this is the church community in Rome. This is where Peter is probably finishing up his ministry. These are his final years. And this is the place where tradition tells us Peter would be executed under the reign of Emperor Nero around 65 or 66 AD. That's important to keep in mind as we move into this book. For Peter will tell us how we're to engage with governing officials, even the Neros of our world. Consider what Peter will say of Emperor Nero. Note you, that's who he's speaking of here. The one who would be responsible for Paul's execution about a year earlier, and then Peter's execution, he says, show proper respect to everyone. Do you know what the word everyone means in Greek? Everyone. It means absolutely everyone. That there is no one to whom you cannot show proper respect. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the emperor? Even that one? Yes, Peter says, even that one. We need to note that in our moment. You may not be very happy with the decisions of some politicians in Canada right now. I can understand that. Yet, this word then is our word today as well. Honor them anyways, you might say. There are, for sure, legitimate critiques that can and must be made of rulers all the time and particularly in a democracy. But the boundaries of the tone and the dispositions which Christian people carry, those are not defined by our feelings about politicians. Those are defined by the very shape and pattern of the life of Jesus. That shouldn't sound shocking or controversial. This is actually just Christianity 101. This is basics of the Christian life. Honor the emperor. Yes, him too. Even Nero. Now, the people Peter writes to in Asia, modern-day Turkey is where he's talking about, 
they're not yet experiencing the state-sponsored persecution that will later come under Emperor Domitian at the end of the first century. They are, however, facing significant pressure for their faith. This is at least in part why Peter calls them and us to be exiles, to be sojourners. They are not truly at home, even in their hometowns. They are not, this is my country. No, they're not, because that's my country. The heavenly homeland is where my citizenship rests. And so they don't join in with the practices and behaviors that their, um, their, their former homeland was, but they, they, they follow the practices and behaviors and dispositions of their heavenly homeland. I think Elliot Clark in his little book on mission in the first Peter puts it well. He says, those Asian Christians lived with some measure of stability and comfort, and yet they experienced a reviling from their family members, neighbors, and coworkers. Friends openly mocked them for their faith, maligning them for their unwillingness to join in debauched parties and sexual escapades. Christian became a cultural byword for idiot. And this is something that we, we have to consider as we work through this little book, that we too are resident aliens, outsiders in our culture, and we need to live in a way that just recognizes that fact. Over the past 40 years, um, the Western world has been increasingly moving into what you might call a post-Christendom uh, situation. And what I mean by that is that Christian people no longer have cultural authority or power, and we can't assume our neighbors even know what it means to be a Christian. You can't just talk Christian language to people and expect that they understand what that means. So we have an incredible opportunity, but it's an opportunity where we are actually speaking and working from the margins. And yet this requires then the same dispositions that we read of, of these early churches working from the margins in the first century. And now on our last point as Peter, as author, we see mention this, my son Mark. Who's Mark? Well, this Mark is probably the one whose gospel bears his name, the gospel of Mark. This is Peter's interpreter. Many scholars agree that the gospel of Mark was Peter's own eyewitness account and words, writing down the words and deeds of Jesus. And that goes back, that tradition of seeing that Mark is Peter's interpreter goes back right to the second century, end of the first, early second century. Uh, Papias was a, a bishop or a pastor in the city of Hierapolis, um, kind of at the, at the beginning of the first or second century, he writes this, uh, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately everything that he remembered without, however, recording in order what was either said or done by Christ. So this Mark is Peter's interpreter. This is, the guy, this is Peter's scribe for the gospel of Mark. And he takes Peter's eyewitnesses' experiences, and then he edits them and fashions them into what would become the gospel of Mark. So second, and here's why this matters for us, as we read and study 1 Peter, we are listening to the same guy who was fishing one day, and Jesus said, come and follow me. And he literally dropped his nets and walked away from his family and everything to follow Jesus. That's the Peter we're reading here. He's the one who saw the miracles. Here's the teaching. Peter is actually the first one to acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the saving, rescuing ruler that God had sent. But he has no idea what this means. And so Peter says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus reveals what that would actually mean, that, that he wins the victory, not by overpowering his enemies by force. That would be the way of Rome. That's Babylon's way. 
but he will give himself willingly to suffer and die and then will be raised again. He will let Rome do its worst to him. And he actually undermines Rome's authority by doing that. He will win the victory through self-sacrifice. And when Peter hears that, he pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, that's not going to happen. That's not how you win. And maybe you remember what Jesus says in response to him. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Strong words, yes. But he's got to move Peter from assuming how God works and how God wins. So Peter hears Jesus' follow-up, and we need to hear it as well. This is what Jesus says then in response to all those who are gathered around him in that moment. He says this, anyone who wants to be my disciple, my follower, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever tries to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And, And here's why we need to see this. The gospel of Mark is Peter's eyewitness account of Jesus. It's marked by this reality that to follow Jesus is ultimate gain, but it will cost you everything. Yet that gain is actually marked by adapting the very same posture of life that Jesus himself has, the self-giving way, the way of the cross. And so the book of 1 Peter then is specifically, specifically drawing out what that looks like for people who are living under pressure. And so We'll see Peter make this bold claim later in the book. And for me, I'm going, to read a, I'm going to read a text that actually changed my life. If there was one verse of the Bible that made me go, oh, I've been doing it wrong, it was this text. This is the one that helped me, <laughs> you might say converted me again to the way of Jesus. And it goes like this, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who always judges justly. Jesus leaves us an example that we would follow in his life of non-retaliation. These words call us to put down our swords. They tell us to put away the anger. When we're insulted and slighted, treated unjustly, it says entrust that to God. He will take care of that. He will take care of you. And we read these words. (laughs) And pardon me, as we read these words, we might wonder who on earth then would want to be a Christian? (laughs) And here's, here's why. Here's who. Because of what Peter says about who we really are and what we have in Christ, what awaits us. See, notice in his greeting, Peter speaks of his audience as elect or chosen, as he puts it. Let me read that again. We who have been chosen, or pardon me, you who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And that means this, that the Spirit actually is shaping and forming and making you into a new kind of person, empowered to actually honor God with how you live goes on, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. We need to feel the drama of this statement. Here is Peter, a Jewish man who had, until he encountered the the transformative work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he had believed 
that non-Jewish people, like Gentiles, that they were polluted, stained, dirty, and very, very far from God. And now he's addressing Gentile people with the very same language that was reserved for God's people, Israel. The elect, the chosen. And Peter can see that it was God's plan all along according to the foreknowledge of God the Father to bless all people. That idea of election, of God's choosing, we first really see that crop up in the Bible with Abraham, who was called by God. But why? Well, it was very clear. He was called by God in order that a blessing might come to all people through him. So election, at first brush, it might generate big questions for us, like chosen in what sense? And is Peter telling us that God is picking and choosing individual people for salvation, or is this choosing of a community for himself? Well, I don't actually think that Peter is, is trying to answer those particular questions. Other places in the Bible might be. I don't actually think that's what Peter's goal is here. And our goal is always to listen to what the inspired author is, is saying to that first audience. That's our first step in the process of reading well. See, later in the book, Peter will talk about how these Gentile Christians are a chosen people a royal nation, God's special possession. And we have to understand that he's actually quoting Exodus chapter 14 there. He is saying that the people of God, the whole people of God, Jew and Gentile together, are, well, the same in that sense of being called like Israel is called, so too that, that who the people of God are extends to all who call on the name of Jesus. So it's using that kind of language. And I think that, that Peter is using the language in that same way that it was used of Abraham, that he was blessed in, and he was called in order to bless other people through him. So election in the Bible often focuses on purpose. This is force. You're elect to do something. And perhaps more than anything, Peter is showing how these folks are chosen like Jesus was chosen. See, he's, he, he roots it in the foreknowledge of God. Now, the Greek word used here, in verse 2, for God's foreknowledge is prognosis. You've heard that before, <laughs> because that's where our English word prognosis comes from. The foreknowledge, it's something looking ahead. Prognosis is what's going to happen. And we see it again one more time in the book of 1 Peter, the verbal form of the same word prognosis, and it's about Jesus. And it says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. Peter's point here is to emphasize that Jesus' calling is a calling to give his life for the sake of others. The emphasis is on that purpose. So Peter isn't trying to settle debates about predestination about individuals. That's just not what he's doing here. Instead, he's offering assurance to these Gentile Christians that the fact of their hardship for their faith, that is not outside of God's divine plans and purposes. Just like Jesus was chosen for a purpose, a purpose that included suffering, so too we are chosen for a purpose. I like how Elliot Clark describes it, uh, and he says that really Peter is using Jesus as the template of what chosenness means and applying that to the community. He writes this, Peter's aim in using this language of election was to highlight the overlapping realities of their experience with the saviors. Jesus, too, was elect. He was chosen by God and precious. He lived in the world as an exile. 
he too was chosen as a stone that was rejected. Jesus wasn't only rejected by the Jewish religious leaders of his day, even his own family opposed him. As Jesus says, foxes and birds had more of a home in the world than he did. Over and over in his letter, Peter compares the identity and experience of his Asian readers to that of the exiled Christ. They too are chosen stones. They too experience rejection and exclusion. Like Christ, they suffered for doing good deeds because as Peter explicitly states, they were sharing in Christ's afflictions. Okay, so what does this all mean then? Well, to be elect, to be the chosen in the way that Peter intends us to hear it is about finding our lives totally bound up in the life of Jesus. It's to know that we too have a purpose. We too have been chosen to bear this good news and that doing so will include our suffering. And yes, that language of election, I think as well, reminds us that all of the power and initiative of salvation, that always begins with God. Notice the Trinitarian language we see there right off the bat too. God the Father, the Spirit sanctifying work, the blood of Jesus Christ. This ought to lead us as we think about the Trinity, the mystery of God who is three, Father, Son, and Spirit, to wonder and to worship. And listen to what Peter says next, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So to, that answer, to answer that question, who would want to become a Christian then, if it includes suffering, here's your answer. That the God who made us in his great mercy gives us new birth into a living hope, has an inheritance for us that can never be taken, it's not going to spoil, it won't fade. That's a salvation that we can live in and live into. Peter helps us look ahead. Peter helps us look up. This is what gathers us as a diverse community, by the way. This is the thing. God's mercy toward us in Jesus Christ, that's what binds us together. And this is what enables us to face the challenges and the pressures without freaking out or lashing out. To not retaliate, hit back, shout back, or let bitterness creep into our hearts. We are promised an inheritance, something that can never be taken, can never be tarnished. And that's the kind of promise that held me this week. You see, while all my heart ached for our country, it also just ached. This past Friday marked the second anniversary of my brother Jordan's death by suicide. Man, he loved Jesus. But boy, he struggled with his mental health and with drug addiction. This is the inheritance that cannot spoil or fade, and it held me this week. That song we started with, um, I've Been Washed by the Blood, <laughs> that one, that was one of Jordan's favorite songs. A teen challenge where he spent his last two years, he sang it regularly, and he said, this is my hope, all my hope is in Jesus. And so we could say it like this, when I lift my eyes to see this reality, when I lift my heart in praise, when I focus on the glory that is to come, that is guaranteed through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, 
that ennobles us. Not only to endure pain as a trial, but as Peter says next, to even rejoice in it. Listen, it's not just that we truly rejoice, but that we greatly rejoice. Listen to verse 6. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And remember, Peter wrote this. He had seen Jesus and he loved him. So Peter is actually marveling at the faith of those who have not seen Jesus and yet still love him. Peter is marveling at your faith if you love Jesus, even though you haven't seen him. I was encouraged by that this week. And he goes on, and even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Yes, for Christian people, there is another horizon that we look to. Of course, we care about justice, about mercy. We care about peace in the here and now. We work toward it in the here and now, but we also live knowing that that this is not the final horizon, that the final answer to our wrestling, our sense of homelessness, is yet to come. That's why the, the Christian ska band that started back in the 90s Five Iron Frenzy, they're called. They they say this, the far-sighted see better things. It's true. We really do. And that's what we have in this text, a reminder to lift our eyes, to look farther out, and then to lift our hearts in praise. We know that suffering and grief, and particularly those sufferings and griefs that, that are directly related to our faith, these have a refining in the fire kind of quality to them. Honestly, we need compassion and to offer it to those who are in raw grieving, not to offer answers. But it would also be wrong-headed to, to not remember that suffering actually has a quality that matures us as well. The Christian view of suffering recognizes that God meets us in our suffering, has actually suffered more deeply than any of us ever will, and He meets us there. He draws us to Himself He actually draws us to each other (laughs) to experience closeness with each other. He develops in us a caring and compassion that if we'd never experienced suffering, we would never develop. So then, how do we stay focused on this gospel and focused on this mission? In a fractured time, in our moment, what keeps our eyes lifted, our hearts attuned to what's to come? Well, we've already seen it in our text. Here's just a couple of parting shots as we close today. Number one, we rejoice greatly and we do it together, side by side as a community. I I see this text as an encouragement to keep making space in my heart to rejoice greatly. And this includes prioritizing rejoicing together as a community. So thank you for those who are prioritizing this time. Yes, I also watched a host of videos of Parliament this week. I did. I talked too much with my wife about the whole emergency acts thing and my concerns with it. The question I came to as I was reading this text, however, was did I lift my eyes? Did I lift my heart? Did I pray my concerns? Did I pray for our Prime Minister? Did I pray for the opposition? 
the rest of parliament, the police officers, the protesters? Did I make space in my heart for all of that, for more of God and to rejoice greatly? Well, let me tell you, I did more after I wrote that line. (laughs) Notice again what Peter says in verse 9. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Are receiving. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Not just, you'll receive this one day. No, that's true. But you are receiving, like right now, in this moment, you are in in the process of experiencing the saving work of God at work in you. This process is a present reality. We are currently receiving it, God's life-giving work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in us. And that is what leads us to rejoice greatly. And then to press into our missional endeavors with fresh energy. Here's the second and last thing. Most of the books written on 1 Peter today have to do with mission. At least those that are written in the West have to do with mission in a post-Christendom setting. And I think that's for a good reason. Because Peter's goal is to help the church think about our missional task in a moment where we don't have the cultural power. That's where we are. How do we bear witness from the margins? How do we grasp that in fresh ways? Well, I want to read you an update from Rebecca, who is one of our missionaries in Ukraine. Because I was reaching out to her this week like crazy. How can we pray for you? What are you doing still there? (laughs) Um, What's your plan? Like, I'm concerned about our missionaries. We have two in Ukraine right now. Here's the response she gave me. She gave me permission to share this with you. Thank you, Dave, for your prayers. We definitely need them right now. I've received emails from the Canadian Embassy urging people to leave while commercial transport is still an option and to prepare to shelter in place if we decide not to leave. However, having prayed over it and discussed it with my team here and the C10 care couple, I've decided to stay here. C10 provides some good advice and resources on when and how to consider this issue and prepare for either staying or leaving. But Abby, Sean, and I, that's the kind of team for eWay, have made some contingency plans. In an emergency, we would take Abby's car and go to the Romanian border, only 40 kilometers away from us. We've stockpiled a little extra food and made go bags ready and located local bomb shelters. However, our first priority is to continue serving the people of Chernobsi and of Ukraine, especially seeing how we can partner with Blagodot Church, that's the church they go to, in assisting any evacuees coming from the east. Did you catch that? Our first priority is serving the people of Chernobsi and Ukraine. It's the same answer I got from Dan, who messaged me just after he arrived in Ukraine on Friday. Everyone else is flying out. He's flying in. Why? Why would they live like that? Are they crazy? Yes, they are. Crazy in love with Jesus, they are. (laughs) Crazy in love with the city that they've been called to reach. Crazy in love with the people of Ukraine crazy focused on the reality that they're on mission with Jesus. Where's your priority and mine? What do we care most about right now? That's the question that we have to keep in front of us. If following Jesus is what we're all about and making him known, man, Becca's response to me this week was almost like a, like a shocking rebuke, to be honest. What is your focus? Is it for the people of of Kamloops and how we best bear witness of Jesus to them. Becca continues, the only time we would leave the city early 
or take a strategic vacation is if our presence here endangered the people we're trying to serve. As far as I can see, the situation remains mostly talk. This was earlier this week, by the way. And this southwest corner is about as far from danger as we can get. Right now, our ministry continues as usual, and I think we are in a unique position to boldly declare the hope and peace we have in Jesus. Our speak-ups, that's one of their ministry nights that's an outreach, have a depth and sincerity that I haven't felt before. I'm scheduling more and more meetings with people and seeing fruit from those meetings and the discipleship groups that we're meeting with. Nevertheless, I am starting to feel the stress in fielding questions from friends and trying to stay focused on ministry here. And Abby is definitely searching for wisdom and how best to lead us in our time of ministry. My question is, is that how you see your life right now? Are, are you looking at what's in front of you, what's going on in your world, with those kinds of lenses? I think the book of 1 Peter helps to put those lenses on, and I'm encouraged by it. Is the question you're asking primarily, how do we serve the people of Kamloops to the glory of God and for their good? I believe that's what God is calling us to in this moment as a church. So may it be so by the grace of God. For we too have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the one who gives us new birth into a living hope. And that new birth includes a whole new way of seeing ourselves, seeing our world, and understanding the task that you've given us. So, Lord, as we worship you this week, as we care about the things you care about, give us hearts that are truly in line with you, our living hope. We greatly rejoice in what you've given us. And now we give ourselves back to you in love and worship. Amen.